And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Get with it, the old west and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March the 21st, 80th day of the year. <coughs> 285 days remain till the year is over with. Well, in regard to holidays on this date, National Crunchy Taco Day. World Puppetry Day, National Memory Day, National French Bread Day, National Single Parent Day, Harmony Day, World Vermouth Day, World Poetry Day, Sertherin Pride Day, International Fragrance Day, World Down Syndrome Day, International Day of Forest National Common Courtesy Day, National Healthy Fats Day, March Madness, National Introverts Week, and of course, National Women's History Month. The, um, my system just went kablooey. Oh, there, there we go, it's back. Alrighty. Well, in 537, saw the siege of Rome. King Vitiges attempts to assault the northern and eastern city walls, but is repulsed at the uh, Prentestine de- Gate, known as the Bavarium, by the defenders and the Byzantine generals uh, Bessus and Perennius. 630, Emperor Heraclius returns the True Cross, one of the holiest Christian relics, to Jerusalem. 717, Battle of Vinci between Charles Martel and Regenfried. 750, well, your studio's falling apart. 752, a nomen of the marriage of King Louis VII of France and Queen Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine. 1180, Emperor Antoku accedes to the throne of Japan. 1556, on the day of his execution in Oxford, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, deviates from the scripted sermon by renouncing the recantations he's made and adds, uh, and it's for the Pope, and refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist, well, with all his false doctrine. I don't think he was a happy camper. 1788, a fire in New Orleans leaves most of the city in ruins. 1800, with the church leadership driven out of Rome during an armed conflict, Pius VII is a crowned pope in Venice with a temporary papal tiara made of papier-mâché. 1801, the Battle of Alexandria is fought between British and French forces near the ruins of Nicopolis, uh, near Alexandria in Egypt. 1804, Code Napoleon is adopted as French civil law. 1814, Napoleonic Wars. Austrian forces repel French troops in the Battle of Arches sur Obi. 1821, Greek War of Independence. Greek revolutionary sees Calavitra. 1844, the. Uh, in 1844, the 
the Maya calendar begins. First day of the first year of the Bahia calendar, it's annually celebrated by members of the Bahia faith as the Bahia New Year, or Nauruza. 1861, Alexander Stevens gives the cornerstone speech. 1871. And 1871, Otto von Bismarck appointed the first chancellor of the German Empire. Also in 1871, General Henry Morton Stanley begins his trek to find the missionary and explorer David Livingston. 1918, World War I, first phase of the German Spring Offensive, Operation Michael begins. 1919, the Hungarian Soviet Republic is established, becoming the first communist government to be formed in Europe after the October Revolution in Russia. You know, the theory is great. Everybody is equal. Nobody has more than anybody else. But in practice, it doesn't work that way. The powers that be have far more than the average individual, and the serfs have nothing. 1921, the new economic policies implemented by the Bolshevik Party in response to the economic failures result of war communism. Um, 1925, the Butler Act prohibits the teaching of human evolution in Tennessee. That led to the Scopes Monkey Trial. 1925, Sigmund Rhee is removed from office after being impeached as the president of provisional government of the Republic of Korea. 1928, saw Charles Lindbergh being presented with the Medal of Honor for the first solo transatlantic flight. 1935, the Shah of Iran, Reza Shah Pahlavi, formally asked the international community to call Persia by its native name, Iran. 1937, the Ponce Massacre. 19 unarmed civilians in Ponce, Puerto Rico, are gunned down by police in a terrorist attack ordered by the U.S. appointed governor, Blanton Winship. 1943, Wehrmacht officer Rudolf von Gerstorff plots to assassinate Adolf Hitler by using a suicide bomb, but the plan fails. Von Gerstorff is able to defuse the bomb in time and avoid suspicion. Him blowing up would have been very suspicious. 1945, World War II, British troops liberate Mandalay, Burma. Also on this day in 45, Operation Carthage, where Air Force planes bombed Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen, Denmark. They also accidentally hit a school, killing 125 civilians. Bulgaria and the Soviet Union on this date successfully complete their defense of the northern bank of the Trava River as the Battle of Transdanubian Hills concludes. 1946, Los Angeles Rams signed Kenny Washington to make him the first African-American player in professional American football since 1933. 1952, Alan Freed presents the Moondog Coronation Ball, the first rock and roll concert in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, he went down in the payola scandal. He was being paid to push certain records. 1960, apartheid, Sharpeville Massacre, South Africa. Police opened fire on a group of black South African demonstrators, killing uh, 69 and wounding 180. 1963, Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary on Alcatraz Island closes on this date. 1965, the Ranger Program. NASA launches Ranger 9, the last in a series of unmanned lunar space probes. 
1965, Martin Luther King Jr. leads 3,200 people on the start of the third and finally successful civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. 1968, Battle of Karameh and Jordan between the Israeli Defense Forces and Combined Forces, Jordanian Armed Forces, and the PLO. 1970, First Earth Day. Proclamations issued by Joseph Elioto, mayor of San Francisco. Also in 1970, the San Diego Comic-Con, the largest pop and culture festival in the world, hosts its inaugural event. 1980, Cold War. President Jimmy the Peanut Man Carter announces a U.S. boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow to protest the Soviet-Afghan War. And let me tell you, that really hit him where it hurt, boycotting the Olympics. 83, the first cases of the 1983 West Bank fainting epidemic begins. Israelis and Palestinians accuse each other of poison gas, but the, the cause is later determined to be psychosomatic. 1986, Debbie Thomas becomes the first African-American to win the World Figure Skating Championship. 1989, Trans-Brazil Flight 801 crashes into a slum near Sao Paulo. Um... Guaraolos International Airport, killing 25. 1990, Namibia becomes independent after 75 years of South African rule. 1994, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change enters into force. Yes, you protest, you wave your signs, climate change will stop. 1999, Bertrand Picard and Brian Jones become the first to circumnavigate the Earth in a hot air balloon. 2000, Pope John Paul II makes his first ever pontifical visit to Israel. 2006, the social media site Twitter is founded. And social media went to hell after that. 2019, the 2019 Shang Tsui chemical plant explosion occurs, killing at least 47, injuring 640 more. And in 2022, China Eastern Airlines flight 5735 crashes into Gangzi, China, killing 132. The, um, let's see. The, um, no, yesterday was the solstice. It's an event that occurs when the sun appears to reach its most normally or suddenly excursion. Um, I'm sorry, today is the solstice. Yesterday was the equinox. And, no, that's not right. Yesterday was the equinox, March 20th. June 21st is the solstice. No, we got it right. Yesterday was the equinox. I didn't mention it um, as I should have. I was taken a task by my um, unbelievably liberal wife. So, uh, well, we've been talking about unsolved murders, and there's a bunch of them. And we got another one for today. This one involves a Missing beauty queen, a bizarre ransom note, and a body found in the basement. The tragic death of JonBenet Ramsey.
a, uh, it's an enigma that is still defied explanation. The uh, police, of course, immediately accused the parents. Uh, the family was destroyed. Then they decided the brother killed her. Uh, and then it determined, was determined that none of them killed her. Of course, she was still dead. So let's start our trip through this Christmas nightmare. She was a six-year-old beauty queen, Jean Bonnet Ramsey. And she was certainly destined for stardom. John and Patsy Ramsey, her parents, were convinced of it. Uh, Patsy Ramsey was a former Miss West Virginia herself and was determined that her daughter follow in her footsteps. The twist of fate, John Bonet would be buried in the same sparkly dress she competed in. The deaths of the details of her death and the mysterious circumstances surrounding it have made it one of the U.S.'s most notorious unsolved murder cases. Now, from a very young age, John Bonet was entered into beauty pageants, dressed in flashy outfits, embellished with sequins and other eye-catching decorations. She'd stand center stage and perform her routines. The Sunburst National Pageant, Little Miss Colorado, Little Miss Clairvaux, Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, and America's uh, Royal Miss. Jean Monet competed in all these beauty pageants. In many sentences, she won them. Just two weeks before she was killed, she'd been crowned Little Miss Christmas. The world remembers Jean Monet with bleached blonde hair and a face full of makeup, but there was a lot more to this young lady. She excelled in mathematics and was fascinated by nature. She enjoyed chatting with the Ramsey's gardener, Brian Scott, while he worked. When he was interviewed, he said, I remember how intelligent she was. That's why I never talked to her as if she was just a little kid. I treated her like another adult. The Ramsey family, six-year-old John Bonet, her nine-year-old brother Burke, and John and Patsy lived at uh, 755 15th Street in Boulder, Colorado house was an impressive brick house in the Tudor Revival style on a tree-lined avenue. December 1994, 2,000 people visited the uh, Ramsey home for a guided tour organized by the Boulder Historical Society. John Ramsey was the president of Access Graphics, a successful computer company, and Patsy was a former pageant star turned housewife. John had um, three grown-up children from a previous marriage, Elizabeth, John, Andrew, and Melinda. 1992, Elizabeth was killed in a car crash. She was only 22 years old. To the outside world, the Ramsey family seemed to epitomize the American dream. Beautiful family, an exquisite house, a vacation home in Clairvaux, Michigan. As Christmas 1996 approached, the Ramseys sent out their usual greeting card detailing the things the family had done during the year along with a photograph. This was the last card they would send as a family of four. On Christmas Eve, the Ramses went to a party given by their old friends, Fleet and Priscilla White. Family left around 10 p.m. And since they were traveling to their vacation home in Clairvaux the next morning and wanted to make an early start, the whole family went straight to bed. Packing for the trip would wait until the morning. At about 5.45... Uh, Patsy Ramsey woke up and discovered a three-page handwritten note on the spiral staircase that led from the master bedroom to the kitchen. And it said, Mr. Ramsey, 
Listen carefully. We're a group of individuals who represent a small foreign faction. We do respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She's safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you have to follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. A hundred thousand of it will be in hundred dollar bills, and the remaining eighteen thousand in twenty dollar bills. And uh, make sure you bring an adequate size attaché to the bank. When you get home, you'll put the money in a brown paper bag. I'll call you between eight and ten a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money ready, we'll we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence a earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You'll also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter will not be, do not particularly like you, and so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anybody about your situation, such as the police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. The money's in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You'll be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. If you try to deceive us, be warned that we're familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. Stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the, the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You're... Not the only fat cat around, so don't think about uh, that killing would be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Then it's signed Victory, SBTC. Well, after reading the note, Patsy rushed upstairs to find that John Bonet was not in her bedroom. Wasn't in the bathroom. She was literally gone. Disregarding the threatening conditions... Lay down in the note, Patsy called 911 to report a kidnapping. And she called several friends, including Fleet and Priscilla White, and begged them to come over immediately for moral support. First officer on the scene, Rick French, was unable to find any sign of forced entry and noted the house's security system hadn't been activated the night before. Contrary to normal protocol, the house was not cordoned off to preserve potential evidence. The Keystone cops have arrived. Police officers, the Ramses, and their friends roamed freely through its rooms. Several people reported to have cleaned up in the house just for something to do. On the kitchen table was a bowl of half-eaten pineapple as well as a heavy flashlight, though neither were thought to be important. The bowl was subsequently washed and removed any possible evidence. And at the designated time for the kidnapper to call, no phone call came. At about 2 p.m., an officer named John... An officer told John and Fleet to uh, conduct another search of the house. John took the lead, and they headed toward the basement. And near the back was a small white door leading to a wine cell that had been ignored during the initial search. As Officer French had only been looking for exit or entry points to the house. Behind that white door, John and Fleet found John Bonet's wife's lifeless body. She was lying on her back with her arms above her head. A blanket was over her body, and her mouth was sealed shut with duct tape. White cord was looped around her wrist and back and neck. 
attached to the cord was a makeshift garrote constructed from a piece of, of a paintbrush. She'd also had a blow to the head. There were marks on her face that could have been made by a stun gun and, or by a piece of electric train track. Uh, part of the basement was, in fact, an electric train layout. As soon as John Bene- Ramsey saw his daughter, he tore the tape off her mouth, scooped her up, and rushed upstairs with her to the living room. Unfortunately, this act would prove extremely harmful to the investigation. Body shouldn't have been touched, let alone moved, until a medical examiner arrived on the scene. And moving the body also made it harder to determine the cause of death. By this point, the crime scene had been severely compromised. Autopsy concluded John Bonet had been asphyxiated. He also suffered blunt force trauma to the head, leading to um, cranial cerebral trauma. Although there was no evidence of conventional rape, sexual assault couldn't be ruled out. Undigested pineapples found in her stomach, indicating she had eaten the fruit within two hours of her death. However, Patsy said John Bonet hadn't eaten pineapple that day, and she'd gone straight to bed after the White's party. Further investigation revealed the other half of the paintbrush among Patsy's art supplies in the basement. Now, in the basement, a small window had been smashed, and while this initially seemed suspicious, John said he had broken it months earlier after accidentally uh, locking himself out. On the windowsill was a layer of undisturbed dust and dirt as well as an intact spider web, suggesting it was not the entry-exit point for an intruder. Single unidentified footprint was detected near where JonBenet's body was found, but no footprint was found in the snow outside the window. The ransom note was the most intriguing piece of evidence in the case. Been written using a pen and notepad that uh, came from the kitchen. A rough draft was of the note was discovered in the middle of the, the pad that was addressed to Mr. and Mrs. And the writer clearly stated uh, later they changed their mind, addressed the real ransom note to Mr. Ramsey. Abnormally long for a ransom demand, the note raised a number of questions. It evidently came from the killer, but did it point toward a member of the Ramsey family or an intruder? Was it genuine or was it a hoax? Well, the letter incorporated references that only a Ramsey would be likely to know. In fact, uh, the amount of 118000 was the same as John Ramsey's recent bonus. And the demand of 118000 was a very small amount for a kidnapper to demand, especially considering how wealthy the Ramsey family was. When Exxon executive Sidney Ressa was abducted in 1992, for example, the ransom was $115.5 million. The letter was signed with the initials SBTC. <coughs> and some detectives theorized this could have been a reference to Subic Bay, where John Ramsey had spent some time during his naval career. Mark uh, McLeish, a retired deputy United States Marshal and author of the 2000 book, I Know You're Lying, uh, detecting deception through statement analysis, there arise the initials stood for Stayed by the Cross. According to Reverend uh, Stephen Sos... Well, sorry about the peanut gallery going crazy. As I was saying, according to Reverend Stephen Sauer, an assistant professor of theology studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, Saved by the Cross was a statement of faith that has its roots in a number of Christian religions. Now, frankly, I can't see where Saved by the Cross had anything to do with the kidnapping, but that's just me. In the note, the writer threatens to behead John Bonet. 
Now, this is an exceptionally violent and uncommon threat. Many experts believe points to a man being involved. A number of experts also claim to note as a number of feminine uh, touches, such as I advise you to be arrested. Experts found at least five other examples of what they referred to as maternalistic language. That's why they began to believe that uh, Patsy Ramsey was the kidnapper. The writer or writers purports to be from a foreign faction, as they use American quotes from the prose style that is distinctively American. The author of the notes misspells words such as business and possession, yet can use and spell correctly more complex words such as countermeasures, deviation, and attache. It also mimics quotes from American movies. Repeated threats that the girl dies echoes the 1971 thriller Dirty Harry. Well, don't try to grow a brain is not only American slang, but also is a quote from the 1994 thriller Speed. Another strange aspect of the, the note was the the way they changed it from we to I as well as from Mr. Ramsey to John, which could imply that more than one person was involved in writing the note. Whoever wrote this ransom demand must have had detailed knowledge of the family's life, and they must have been able to move easily about that house in the dark and find a tucked away wine cellar in the basement. Handwriting experts from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation decided John Ramsey did not write the note, but their analysis about Patsy was inconclusive. During the lengthy investigation, 73 suspects' handwriting would be analyzed to discover who could have written it, Convinced the police were regarding them as prime suspects in the murder of their daughter, both John and Patsy hired separate lawyers and refused to speak to the police. They felt they had told everything they knew and could not provide any more insights into the case. In March 1997, John Ramsey's two adult children, John Andrew and Melinda, were cleared as suspects. April 30, 1997, the Ramseys finally agreed to separate formal interviews. Only agreed on the condition they received the police report so they could prepare for the questions. To the police, their reluctance to cooperate seemed to conflict with their earlier statements that they'd do whatever was necessary to aid the investigation. Throughout her short life, John Bonet had a frequent tendency to wet the bed. For some, this cast further suspicion on John and Pat's. His bedwetting was often a response to, in children to child abuse. The underwear that John Bonet was wearing when her body was found was stained with urine and Pull-up diapers were hanging out of the closet outside John Bonet's bedroom. Theory circulated that Patsy accidentally killed John Bonet in a fit of rage following a bedwetting accident, caused Patsy to scoff, uh, somebody really think I'd kill my child because she wet the bed? Over the ensuing years, John and Patsy uh, remained uh, under a cloud of suspicion. 1999, the Boulder Grand Jury voted to indict both parents on two counts of child abuse resulting in the death of John Bonet. However, the Ramses were never indicted because the district attorney, Alex Hunter, refused to sign the documents. The grand Jury investigated the case between 1998 and 1999. A witness who appeared before it, uh, Linda Hoffman Pugh, was the Ramses' housekeeper at the time of John Bonet's murder. Hoppin' Pew voiced suspicions that Patsy Ramsey was guilty of the daughter's murder, stating she argued with her often. I think she had multiple personalities. She'd be in a good mood and she'd be cranky, according to her, the statement of the housekeeper. That is any female. I've seen it numerous times. 
Hoppin Pugh maintained the blanket John Bonnet's body was wrapped in, most likely came from a clothes dryer near John Bonnet's bedroom. Further evidence disclosed during the grand jury included uh, four fibers that were found on the adhesive side of the sticky tape that had been placed over John Bonnet's mouth. Fibers were determined to be microscopically and chemically consistent with the sweater that Patsy wore on the night of the murder. However, the tape had been removed in the house and then dropped on the floor, which would explain the presence of the fibers. As I say, the investigation was certainly Keystone Copish. Following questioning by the grand jury, the authorities confirmed that Burke Ramsey, who was just nine years old at the time of the murder, was not a suspect. However, John Bonet's brother later became a favorite culprit among many Internet uh, sleuths over the years. His seemingly lighthearted, casual attitude uh, during a taped interview with a child specialist January 8, 1997, which was just two weeks after the death of his sister, caught the attention of several people. Former friends and neighbors of the Ramsey stated Burke had a temper and was jealous of the attention his sister received, leading to a report that Burke had been violent with John Bonet in the past. According to a family photogra- photographer, he had hit her on the head with a golf club a year earlier. In December 2016, Burke's lawyer filed a defamation lawsuit uh, totaling $790 million against CBS Corporation for speculating that he was the killer in their television documentary, documentary the case of John Bonet Ramsey. In 2016 TV interview, Burke said the murderer was some pedophile in the pageant audience. 2008, Boulder County DA uh, Mary Lacey exonerated the entire Ramsey family on the basis their DNA did not match unidentified male DNA found on two items of John Bonet's clothing. Now, this ruling came too late for Mrs. Ramsey, who died of ovarian cancer in 2006 at just the age of 49. However, it transpired that the partial DNA profile that was obtained contained a mixture of DNA belonging to John Bonet, an unknown male, and in one sample, a third unidentified person. Aside from family members, several other people were suspects in the case. Housekeeper Linda Hoffman Pugh and her handyman husband, Mervyn, came under suspicion when Patsy told investigators that the Hoffman Pugh um, had money problems and once asked about Ramsey's for a loan. It's possible, Linda knew how much John Ramsey had been awarded as a Christmas bonus. However, Linda had a key to the house and was familiar with its layout. Speculated if John Bonet had been killed by an intruder or intruders, they could have had a key since there was no obvious signs of forced entry. However, Linda and Mervyn were never accused of any crime. At the time of John Bonet's murder, Gary Oliva, a drifter with a history of sexually abusing minors, lived just a few blocks away from the Ramsey house. When he was picked up on an unrelated charge four years later, police found a photograph of John Bonet and a stun gun in his backpack. Search of his apartment revealed an eerie shrine to John Bonet. Olivia, uh, Oliva claimed he never lusted over this shrine, but instead would look at the pictures and cry. Police took Oliva to the station to question him about the murder. He was grilled for hours, asked to provide DNA and writing samples, and then released without a charge. Somebody who was convinced of um, Oliva's guilt was his own high school friend, Michael Vale, who... Uh, claimed that um, just after John Bonet's murder, Oliva called him in a panic and said he'd hurt a little girl before hanging up. 2018, it was reported Oliva sent a letter to Vale confessing to the murder of John Bonet by accident. Oliva is currently serving a 10-year sentence for two counts of attempted sexual exploitation of a child, one count of sexual exploitation of a child. But again, the Keystone cops ignored all this because they had their killer.
Early suspect was Bill McReynolds, who played Santa Claus at private parties for the Ramses and confessed to being particularly fond of John Bonet. McReynolds and his wife Janet had been at the Ramsey house just two nights before John Bonet was murdered. Police were said to have discovered some eerily parallels between the McReynolds' lives and details in the murder case. December 26, 1974, the McReynolds' nine-year-old daughter and another girl were abducted by an unknown assailant and who molested the second girl. Within hours, both girls were set free. Additionally, police found out that Janet had written a play in 1977. It was about the torture and murder of 16-year-old Sylvia Likens, who was found dead in a basement, much like John Bonet. McReynolds constantly denied any involvement. Investigators ruled him out. I mean, after all, he said he didn't do it, so why would we doubt him? An electrician named Michael Helgoth worked close uh, to uh, the Ramsey home, had a history of violence and sexual abuse. November 1996, Helgoth supposedly told a colleague he and a friend would soon make a large sum of money, fifty to 80000 each. February 13, 1997, D.A. Alex Hunter announced in the press conference they were narrowing down the list of suspects. Only one would remain. Two days later, Helgoth was found dead by what appeared to be suicide. 2006, ex-school teacher John Mark Carr spun investigators a lurid tale of how he had drugged and sexually assaulted John Bonet before accidentally killing her. His ex-wife claimed that he had been with her in Alabama at the time of the murder, though. In addition, Carr's statement conflicted with the evidence as the autopsy revealed no drugs. Carr's DNA didn't match any found on the body, and he was dropped as a suspect in spite of his confession. December 2016, it was announced that further DNA testing was planned in hopes of new technology would help crack the case. Well, the tragic case of John Bonet Ramsey divided the nation with both the police and the public, either believing that an intruder broke into the Ramsey home and killed John Bonet or that she was murdered by a family member. Thanks to a combination of a contaminated crime scene, a bungled initial police investigation, and the Diametrically opposed opinion as numerous experts, a definitive solution to the murder of John Bonet Ramsey seems as elusive as ever. Now, the interesting thing is, when police screw up an investigation as badly as this one was screwed up, they fall back on the old tried and true. If a husband or wife is killed, it's the spouse that you arrest. If a child is killed, it's a sibling or the parents. You know, no thorough investigation from everything I've been able to find has ever been carried out. But destroying a family, oh, what the hell, there's plenty of other families. Alrighty. From John Bonet, let's talk about... Uh, The Tupac Shakur and the Biggie Smalls murders. You know, the two rappers, Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, were close friends and became bitter rivals. And their death sparked the most infamous murder mystery in hip-hop history. They were two of the leading rap artists of the 90s and remained among the most influential of all time. Their fame and success was rapidly rising, until in the space of about six months, both were killed in drive-by shootings. September uh, 7, 1996, Tupac Secure, who was just 25, was gunned down in his car in Las Vegas and died from his wound six days later. 
March 9th, the next year, 24-year-old Christopher Wallace, better known as Biggie Smalls or the notorious B.I.G., was shot dead in his car in Los Angeles. Tupac and Biggie had been friends early in their careers, but were now key players in the East Coast-West Coast hip-hop rivalry. Principal uh, between the competing record labels, Bad Boy Records, owned by Sean Combs, also known as Puff Daddy, and Death Row Records, owned by Marion Sugg Knight. Feud sparked bitter tension between rappers, fans, and the L.A. gangs, with the Crips backing Bad Boy Records and the Bloods backing Death Row Records. 1994, Secure was ambushed and shot five times at uh, Quad Record Studios in Manhattan, New York, and he accused Biggie of being responsible. Some say it was this incident that launched the rift that would ultimately claim the lives of both of these uh, rappers. Following various accusations, Biggie responded by releasing songs with veiled references to the shooting. With while Shakur released um, "Hit 'Em Up," the lyrics of which bragged that he had slept with Biggie's wife, the singer and songwriter Faith Evans. September 7, 1996, Tupac attended the Mike Tyson-Bruce uh, Seldom boxing match at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. After they left, Suge Knight drove Shakur to a party at Club 662 with the rest of Tupac's entourage following in various cars. When Suge stopped at a traffic light, a white Cadillac pulled up alongside his black BMW and more than a dozen shots were fired from a Glock 40. That's a... 22 semi-automatic pistol, orderly wounding Tupac and grazing Knight's head. Tupac had been hit twice in the chest, once in the arm and once in the thigh. September 13, 1996, he died from his injuries. Police investigations into Tupac's murder were plagued by lack of evidence and fearful, uncooperative witnesses, despite the fact that uh, numerous people were nearby when the shooting took place. Rapper... Uh, Yaki Gaddafi, a friend of Tupac's, who was in the car behind his, and, uh, said he could identify the assailant. Unfortunately, Gaddafi was accidentally shot dead by the rapper Napoleon, a former member of Tupac's rap group uh, Outlaws, on November 10th, before the police were able to interview him about the case. Well, isn't that convenient? first person of interest in the shooting was a Southside Crips gang member named Orlando Anderson, who had been Seen fighting with Tupac in the MGM Grand Lobby shortly before the shooting. Suge Knight's friend, uh, Trevon Lane, who identified Anderson as the person who had robbed him at the death row records uh, of his death row records chain, uh, which was customarily worn by members of the label uh, a few weeks earlier. Tupac and other members of death row records promptly beat Anderson up. When Tupac was ambushed in a drive-by shooting later that night, Anderson became the prime suspect. He was arrested and questioned October 2, 1996, but police released him without charge two days later. He died in 1998 in a gang shooting unrelated to the Tupac case. Music world reeled with grief following the shooting of Tupac. It did not be long before fans were mourning another murder. Biggie Smalls closed his second album, titled uh, Life After Death, with the track You're Nobody Till Somebody Kills You. He was shot dead just weeks after the album was released. About 12.35 in the morning on March 9, 1997, Biggie climbed into the passenger seat of his GMC Suburban. He was leaving a Soul Train Awards after-party hosted by Vive magazine at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. The car came to a halt at a red light, a dark green, or 
depending or black depending on the witness. Chevy pulled up alongside. The driver's reported wearing a blue suit and bow tie. At least seven rounds from a nine millimeter pistol of unknown make was fired through the door of Biggie's car and closed tinted window, um, hitting only Biggie. Clearly an assassination with the killer having a specific target in mind. Well, Biggie was immediately rushed to nearby Cedar Sinai Hospital, which was pronounced dead at 1.15 in the morning. He'd been hit by four bullets. The fatal shot struck his right hip, traveled up to his vital organs, including both his heart and his lungs. Death was almost instantaneous. One LAPD officer commented Biggie had to be crazy to be so unprotected in Los Angeles six months after Tupac. In fact, Biggie's in awaiting delivery of a new bulletproof uh, Chevrolet Suburban. It arrived three days after his death. The professional drive-by hit mirrored the earlier slaying of Tupac Shakur, and the LAPD soon announced that, in their opinion, the murder was motivated by revenge. Conventional wisdom is, uh, you know, it's got to be payback for Tupac, one officer commented. Many rap aficionados agreed the murders were a result of the long-running feud between the East Coast and the West Coast. Others speculated the feud uh, could be unveiled to hide more complex motives. Nick Broomfield's 2002 feature-length documentary, Biggie and Tupac, put forward the case that Shug Knight ordered Tupac's murder because Knight owed the rap star a large sum of money and royalties, and he heard through the grapevine that Tupac was planning to switch to another record label. Broomfield also alleged that uh, Shug Knight had uh, Tupac killed in order to sell more posthumous albums. According to Bloomfield, the murders of both Shakur and Biggie were orchestrated by Suge and carried out and ordered up and covered up by the LAPD. He alleged at the time of the murder, Knight had several LAPD officers on his payroll working as off-duty bodyguards. In the documentary, a former LAPD detective named Russell Poole reports his own private investigation into Suge Knight's role in the murders of Tupac and Biggie was rebuffed. Poole believed his superiors were engaged in a cover-up and because of that, he resigned. This had been some ordinary drive-by shooting by some inexperienced gangbangers. would have solved that a long time ago, he said. But too many coincidences were taking place. It would be impossible without in, inside um, involvement. Ralph Sullivan, author of the 2002 book on the murders, uh, also presented a case against Death Row Records boss. He claimed Knight had Biggie murdered to maintain the illusion of a tit-for-tat feud and divert suspicion from itself for Tupac's murder. 2005, Biggie's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit in which they contended ex-LAPD officer David Mack helped plan Biggie's shooting. Mack, who by that time was serving a 14-year-old prison sentence for bank robbery, denied any involvement. Kevin Hackey, Tupac's former bodyguard, was called as a witness. He testified Mack and employees of Death Row Records, including Suge Knight, orchestrated the murder. He stated he once heard Death Row Records head of security and LAPD officer Reggie Wright Jr. say they were going to get Biggie in retaliation for Tupac's murder. However, as you might guess, knowing the type of judges we have on the bench, the wrongful death lawsuit was uh, dismissed. Suge Knight is currently incarcerated in R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego for carrying a, serving a 28-year sentence for a hit-and-run murder in 2015 unrelated to the Shakir and Smalls case. Another very popular theory was that, in fact, Biggie Smalls wanted to hit on Tupac. Shakir were doing the escalating East Coast-West Coast feud. Los Angeles Times reporter Chuck Phillips 
wrote an article in which he claimed that Biggie was in Las Vegas at the time of the shooting and he supplied the gun and a million-dollar bounty for the murder of Tupac. And it was said to have been carried out by the Crips in revenge for the beating of Orlando Anderson. However, further investigation revealed that Biggie was in a New York recording studio at the time of the murder. Phillips later wrote another report that asserted Biggie was involved in a 1994 shooting that occurred in Manhattan, New York. The report claimed that Biggie, along with Sean Combs and Bizarre Entertainment CEO Jimmy Henchman Roseman, orchestrated the attack in response to perceived disrespect by Tupac. Both Combs and Roseman strongly denied any involvement, saying the story is beyond ridiculous and is completely false. They added they had never even been questioned regarding the 1994 shooting. Phillips had supposedly received the information from jailhouse informants in 2011. Dexter Isaac, who was serving time in prison for unrelated crimes, claimed he'd committed a 1994 shooting of Tupac Shakur and that Rosemont had paid him $2,500 to carry it out. Not much money for a murder. Rumor also circulated Tupac faked his own death. These were fueled by a flood of new songs released following his murder as well as posthumous appearances in music videos. The conspiracy theories and stream of suspects surrounding the two murder cases are seemingly endless. Retired LAPD homicide detective Greg Kading, uh, working on both cases, provided yet another theory. In his 2011 book entitled Murder Rap, the untold story of the Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur murders by the detective who solved both cases, he maintains that Sean Coombs hired Tupac's assassin for $1 million. Furthermore, sources in a 1998 Vice article alleged Biggie was killed over unpaid debts of $100,000 owed to the Crips, who had been hired as security by Combs. Pepper refused to pay the $100,000. He offered him $10,000. That's why Biggie Smalls is dead today, according to Reggie Wright Jr., who would uh, later be named as a suspect in Tupac's murder by both Suge Knight and then Kevin Hackey during the wrongful death lawsuit filed by Biggie's family. Combs responded, it's not even possible. I don't have debts, period. 2018, rapper Keith D., Dwayne Keith Davis, who was dying from cancer, claimed in a deathbed confession he'd been a witness to the Tupac shooting. He said he'd been in the front seat, and his nephew Orlando Baby Lane Anderson and DeAndre Dre Smith were in the back seat of the Cadillac. Driver was Terrence T. Brown Brown, our members, now deceased, of the Southside Crips gang, and they were looking for Tupac out for revenge after Tupac had been... Uh, Earlier beaten up, uh, uh, had earlier beaten up Anderson in the lobby of the MGM Grand. Spotting Tupac talking to some girl fans, they pulled up next to his car and Anderson shot him. The forever intertwined murders gave a insight into hip hop's murky underworld. The short lives and violent deaths of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls had made their international made them international icons. Few pop culture figures have been mythologized and eulogized in the, to the same extent. Spectacular murals paying tribute to both rap artists uh, adorn streets worldwide. Nevertheless, despite the many articles, books, movies, and theories devoted to the double murder, nobody's ever been charged with either killing. As long as the surviving key players remain tight-lipped, there's little hope of full disclosure anytime soon. And when you're dealing with people like the Crips and the Bloods, they would rather die than uh, point the finger at somebody. Well, let's talk about the murder of television presenter Jill Dando, killed on the doorstep of her London home. She was a popular BBC TV presenter throughout the 1990s. 
Her personality lit up such programs as Breakfast News, the 6 o'clock news, and a travel series holiday. But she was best known as one of the principal anchors of the primetime investigative show Crime Watch. Each week, she'd present the key facts of a recent unsolved UK crime and invite viewers to help police by contacting a special phone number. In fact, Crime Watch was partially responsible for bringing a number of criminals to justice. At just 37 years old, Jill Dando was in the prime of her life and career and soon going to be married. Had everything to look forward to. Her fiancé, gynecologist Alan Farthing, lived in Bedford Close in the affluent district of Chiswick in West London. Dando was in the process of selling her two-story house at 29 Gowan Avenue in nearby Fulham so she could move in with him. Her own house was up for sale, but she still needed to stop off there to pick up mail and check her fax machine. On the morning of April 26, 1999, she set off in her car to make just such a visit. On the way, she went into a BP garage and visited Hammersmith Shopping Center, buying a new fax machine cartridge and paper and two fillets of Dover Soul. Her image was captured on security cameras, and there was no evidence that she or her car were being followed. Certainly, though, you can't rule that out. She was scheduled to read the BBC 6 o'clock news the next day. In a tragic twist of fate, her own murder would be the uh, lead story. At about 11.30 that morning, she arrived at her front door, carrying shopping bags in one hand and her house keys in the other. Before she had a chance to open a door, somebody grabbed her, pushed her to the ground, and shot her in the head. And those neighbor, Richard Hughes, later told police that around the time of the attack, he heard her let out a distinctive scream, adding that she sounded quite surprised. Moments later, he spotted a clean-sleeved, well-dressed man with dark hair running down the street. He uh, described the man as being in his late 30s, early 40s, about 5 foot 11. And where anything was wrong, he went on with what he was doing. Fifteen minutes later, a woman passing by discovered Jill Dando lying on the ground outside her home in a pool of blood, her head resting against her front door. She was rushed to Charing Cross Hospital, but pronounced dead on arrival. Autopsy revealed the gun had been pressed hard against her head when it was fired. The impression of the weapon's barrel and the sight were clearly visible. A single 9mm bullet had entered just behind the top of her left ear and exited above the right, embedding itself in the door. The gun had been fitted with a silencer, but because it was fired while forced against her head, the noise of the shot had been greatly reduced. Damage to the lower part of the door indicated the victim had been in a crouched position when the fatal shot was fired. Presumably, she had been forced to the ground by her killer. And a bruise on Dando's forearm could have been caused by her assailant as well. Police investigators, some of whom had worked alongside Dando and Crime Watch, now had the grim task of... Well, as an investigative journalist and presenter, she'd come into contact with a number of unsavory characters over the course of her career. Could she have been targeted by a professional hitman? Was somebody seeking revenge? One theory was she had been murdered by a Yugoslavian or Serbian assassin after making a TV appeal for Kosovo Albanian refugees. She'd been driven from their homes by militias uh, backing Serbian Libra Slogodom Milosevic. People's broadcast April 6, 1997, just 20 days before the murder. Another theory was she'd been targeted by a criminal she'd helped expose on an episode of Crime Watch. The fact that the killer knew to place the gun directly against her head to minimize noise and blood spatter indicated he or she could have been a professional. 
Another line of inquiry examined the possibility Dandel had been murdered by an obsessive stalker. Occupational hazard for those in the limelight. It could have been either a stalker or a hitman. However, there were many theories to be explored and nothing to be left untouched. That was according to Detective Chief Inspector Hamish Campbell, who was leading the investigation. Massive media coverage meant that the police were under great pressure to find the killer. Nevertheless, their injuries provided uh, proof fruitless until more than a year later came the announcement the press and public had waited for. February, May 25, 2000, Barry George, 39, described as a local weirdo with an obsession for Freddie Mercury of the rock band Queen, was arrested and charged with Jill Dando's murder. He'd come to the attention of the police when he called him shortly after Dando's death to report he'd seen a truck acting suspiciously near her home on the day of the murder. Police discovered that George, who was unemployed, had a history of stalking women and also convictions for sexual assault. He was put under surveillance as police collected evidence against him. Detectives alleged, uh, allegedly assigned an undercover police woman to talk to George, hoping he'd confess to the murder, but no success. You know, the Keystone cops even work with the police in Britain. After George's arrest, much was made of his local reputation as a loner and an oddball. He certainly had obsessive aspects to his personality, had an unusual interest in celebrities, and frequently adopted their names. In the years leading up to his arrest, he'd called himself Steve Majors, after actor Lee Majors, who played Colonel Steve Austin in the TV action series The Six Million Dollar Man. Also called himself Barry Bulsara, Freddie Mercury's real surname. He'd begun calling himself Barry Bulsara following Freddie Mercury's death in 1991. He claimed to be Freddie Mercury's cousin and pestered women who worked for the Queen's fan club. George also fabricated stories about his past, claiming to have been a Rhodey from Michael Jackson, who served in the British Army's elite SAS Corps. 1983, he'd been arrested wearing a balaclava and carrying a knife and a rope on the grounds of Kensington Palace. Those who knew him said that he was obsessed with his health and could frequently be seen jogging or cycling in the neighborhood. Shortly before his trial, George, had, uh, who had an IQ of just 75, placed him in the lowest 5% of the population, was diagnosed with Asperger's Syndrome. Well, basically, the bottom line to this whole thing was Joe Dando's murderer and obsessive fan, a vengeful gangster, a Serbian hitman. 2009, the BBC revealed shortly after Jill's murder, an anonymous caller claimed to have killed Jill and also threatened the head of BBC News at the time, Tony Hall. 2012, the Serbian angle seemed to have more, be more plausible, and the Daily Mail newspaper reported that a Serbian woman, Branka Prepa, claimed that her TV presenter husband, Slavko uh, Karuvaja, uh, a critic of Slobodan Milosevic, had been murdered in a similar fashion just 15 days before Jill Dando. Despite intense media coverage in the press and on TV and the hefty reward for information leading to, the, to a conviction, Jill Dando's killer has never been brought to justice. April 2019, 20 years after her murder, BBC documentary examined the case but turned up no new evidence. Joe Dando's brother, Nigel, interviewed on the program, observed that such a pointless thing to have happened. I believe there was no real reason, just an act of random brutality, and Jill was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow, and once again, if you listen to Ken Hudnall on the Ken Hudnall Show, till then, this is Ken Hudnall saying, have a truly great evening.